Please welcome to the stage a true broadcasting giant, and not just from my vantage point, Sir David Attenborough. You're obviously a broadcasting legend, so I'm not going to sit here and diss you, but <laughs> is there any truth to the rumour that you bagged your first job in TV without having really seen any? That's, yes. You're not I really thought, qualified. I've seen one, one programme. What was it? Uh, it was a play by Ennui, transmitted live. I forgot what it was called. I, it was, I hadn't got a television set. My wife-to-be, my girlfriend had, parents had, and I saw that. And I applied for a job in radio, and I didn't get a, a, an interview. And a fortnight later, someone wrote to me from the BBC and said, we've got this new thing called television. Um, <laughs> people are being quite rude about it, but we think there could be something in it. Would you, would you like to come to Alexander Palace and see if you'd be interested? Really? And, and so we're talking about 1952. Yeah. And it was then known as the Talks Department. I well, mean, it sounds like sort of radio with pictures, really. Well, that's but indeed so. Um, but what other name would you give to which was... It was effectively all non-fiction television. And there were about uh, a dozen, no, less than that, eight television producers who did all non-fiction. I, I just exclude sport and, and outside broadcast, but all the rest. I mean, religion, politics, quizzes, cooking, knitting, uh, all that sort of stuff. And... Um, and I used to do, sometimes, would, it was all live, I should say. And I would produce maybe one or two programmes a week. Um, and uh, that, was, that was quite intense. It wasn't always like that. But we did anything. And, and people would come into the canteen and said, uh, we've got a problem. Um, and the Radio Times is just going to press, and we've got absolutely nothing for next, since Tuesday at 7.30. Anybody got any ideas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, really. But what I love, um, people probably don't realise why we call it the gallery in television, but in Alexandra Palace it was literally, wasn't it? it that's yeah. where it comes from. It yes, it was. Right a, up the a, top, a sort yeah. of gantry. Yeah, yeah. So it's a classic showbiz story in lots of ways, uh, because you were the understudy who became the star in a sort of way. I mean, you stepped in front of the camera when the original presenter of Zoo Quest uh, was a gentleman called Jack Lester. He was taken on well. Yes. And you were producing, is that right? Yes. Uh, it was uh, the London Zoo uh, said out an expedition to collect animals. I mean, we, we cooked it up with, with this chap, lovely man called Jack Lest, who was the expert on reptiles. And I said, look, I want to go to Africa, you know. And he, and he said, yeah, well, come on. We'll... And we cooked up this idea. And, and the idea was that we would film Jack collecting things. And, and then when we got back, we would show them live in the studio. And the first program, this was 1954. Uh, the first programme, poor Jack was very ill. Um, and so the second programme uh, was going on the next, next week. Uh, and uh, uh, it was live. And Jack had dropped out. And the director of television said, Attenborough, uh, you will have to go and do it. Go on over. Staff no fee, I remember he said. Very so clearly. Right, so yeah. Just, yeah. just part of yeah, your remit. It's part of your job. Yeah. And, um, and so I did. And... Uh, 
And then that, I did the rest of the series. And then the following year, we were going to do it again, because it was quite a success. But again, Jack was going to do it. And again, he went out. And by this time, he came very ill indeed, just before the transmission, or well, halfway during the expedition. And so I took over. And it was too good a racket to let it go. And Jack, <laughs> and Jack was very keen on saying, you know, OK, you, you carry on, which is what I did for the next 10 years. Really. So that first time, when, it's, when the cameras go live and the red light goes on, that very first time, do you remember that? Were you terrified or did you take to it? Uh, well, I'd been doing live programmes as a, as a, direct, Producer, as a yeah. director, director. So the atmosphere of the studio, which, of course, as you know, and, and many of you here will know, I mean, it's champagne, isn't it? I mean, it's really very, very exciting. And particularly when you know it's live. And particularly, I mean, when you drove to the, away from the evening, you know, you're coming down from Alexander Palace around the North Circular, and if there was that eerie glow on, the, on those curtains, you know, there were no people there with a television set. And they would have been watching you. They would have seen your programme. And you almost wanted to stop and knock on the door and say, do you think it was all right? I'm awfully sorry about that last <laughs> bit. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it was it was champagne stuff. Yeah. But you think how the world has changed now? Because I mean that program Zoo Quest. There you were going to collect animals uh, for the zoo. I mean it seems unfathomable unfathomable to us now as a natural history program, doesn't it? Oh yes, and zoos, zoos don't do that anymore. It was a fag end of an old a Victorian tradition, really, uh, and quite right too. I mean uh, the natural world's under enough problems as it is without people going out trying to catch more things. But, um, yeah, but it was, in those days, we didn't have um, long enough lenses to get close-ups of animals at any distance. So the only way you're going to see the close-up of, say, a, a gaboon viper, you know, is about to strike, you know, a cobra about to strike. You couldn't film that, really, properly. So the thing you do was you have to do it in the studio, uh, which is what, so the excuse was, there was a chap from the zoo who knew understood about catching cobras and gaboon vipers and so on. He would pick it up, and that was on film. And then, in order to get the details and show how this, that, and the other, you had it live in the studio. Because where you could really get close, you could really get cameras close, and so on. So that's what we did. Uh, it was, I mean, if you saw them now, you, you couldn't believe how crude they were. But at that time, you think nobody had seen an aardvark. Mm. No, nobody had seen a sloth. And everything you did, it didn't matter how badly you did it, they hadn't seen that sort of stuff before. <laughs> and so they thought, did you see the aardvark last night? You know. I know the thing that you kept looking for. In fact, one of the reasons why you did ZooQuest, you were looking for a white-necked rock fowl. Yes, indeed. Did you ever find it? Yes, we did. Yes, we did, actually. I mean, and we... <laughs> I remember we actually... We, we called it by its proper name, which was Picothartes gymnocephalus. Oh, I see. And, yeah, there, there you are. <laughs> and, and I remember... <laughs> Um, this quite unimportant bird, the only qualification it had was that nobody had ever seen it alive, no European had ever seen it alive. So uh, we actually caught quite early on in, in, in the expedition. It was three months out there, but we didn't let on for that. See, no. the first programme, here we are, we're going out to look at Picothartes, Jim and Cephalus, you see. And then at the end, you wouldn't see the damn thing, but at the end, you'd say, well, so we continued our quest for the Picothartes. <laughs> and the cameraman and I, Charlie Lagos, who was the, the film camera, we were in this little red um, open MG, driving along Oxford Street, I remember, which you could do then. And we were a bit worried about this Picothartes gymnocephalus. I mean, was the great British public going to become frightfully excited by that? So, and, and as we stopped by the lights, the bus driver leant down and he said, Hello, Dave. 
He said, but are we or are we not going to buy and bicker bloody bargain? <laughs> would have been lousy telly if you'd said at the beginning that you'd already got it, wouldn't it? No, it was terrible it would, television. What was it about presenting that made you want to continue? What was oh, the... Oh, the, the racket of going out there. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that was a fun. Uh, I mean, I, I, my job was a television producer. And, and the, the Zoo Quest stuff was a thing you did half the year. The other half of the year, I produced um, prime ministers' broadcasts, and I produced quizzes and all sorts of things, and, and travel programmes. But, it, it, see, it was the spring of television. I mean, we were just starting. You know, only one network, you know, 405 blind pictures. And, and, uh, and you just, it was, you couldn't tear yourself away from it. It was so exciting. And every time, and you, people used to just think of programmes and uh, dream them up and say, look, what about a programme on uh, heraldry? And they say, heraldry? Oh, that's a very good idea. I think we'd have to first class. Right there. <laughs> How many would, and we used to do that. That's what we used to do. I mean, that's a wonderful time to be there ah. with lots and lots of firsts. And, and presumably, I mean, your whole career has been full of firsts, but the first time you saw, for example, a Komodo dragon or the first time that you saw a, a creature that had not been filmed and shown into people's sitting rooms, there must have been a moment of just supreme excitement that you're oh, saying to people, come and see what I've got. Unbelievable. I mean, uh, it was... Uh, you see, people hadn't seen anything. I mean... The Commander Dragon no, had never been seen on film. Uh, that's not quite true. The Americans in the 1920s, who actually were the first person to, to actually notice that there was a, this unknown species so far, um, they had filmed it, but it hadn't been filmed on television. Nobody on television had seen it. And those, that film that they took in the 20s, nobody had seen that either. So effectively, this was the first time. And, and it was, you know, I was able to say quite truthfully and honestly, uh, you know, nobody's seen this before. You, here is the biggest lizard in the world. And uh, um, everybody said, yes, I'm astounding. And it, what a privilege, though, you know, to, to, and the thrill of it. Mind you, it was absolutely balmy, I mean, the way we did it. I mean, it took us three months. The cameraman and I just pushed off. I remember the, the, the boss of the, uh, the chap who looked after the business affairs, the talks department, was a, for some reason or other, if you know the BBC, it would be very typical of those days. He was an expert in Icelandic sagas. Oh, yeah, that, perfect. Yes, he was. I absolutely did. ideal for the job. Yes. And, and, uh, and he, I remember he said, um, what, what sort of budget do you want? I said, well, I, not a lot because, you know, feeding on rice and, you know, I, I said, I don't know, say uh, uh, 500 pounds a programme. He said, yeah, I think it's perfectly reasonable. Um, how long, how many programmes? And I said, well, I think about six, probably. Yeah, it's a very good idea. Back for Christmas, would you be? And I said, <laughs> goodbye. No health and safety briefing? None or? at all. I couldn't speak a word of Indonesian. I mean, it was absolutely balmy. Did you have to write home and say, we're all fine, it's all carrying on? Yes, if you wanted a reply. That was three weeks to get a letter home. And there, was no, there was no radio, there was no telephone. Yeah. I, mean, you just, I said goodbye to my dear wife and I'll see you on Christmas. I think programmes should be made like that now. I think absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, the wonderful thing is when I, when I watch you and you have moments like, you know, a crocodile coming at you or you meet a Komodo dragon for the first time, you don't seem to be phased. Did you realise early on that you were not afraid? You were much more enthralled than ever uh, showing any fear. I am afraid. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but but, you, but the camera's on the, on the animal. And the bit where, you know, you've got these binoculars looking straight at the camera, that sort of thing, you know... <laughs> The animal's not there. That's what you cut in, you see. <laughs> so uh, you haven't seen me saying, oh, my God. 
got the size of that dragon. Lord. Um, well, we've actually got a, a clip from ZooQuest. Shall we have a look? Very well. The locals recommended that we should use a dead goat as bait. Once in the bush, we began to build a trap using materials gathered from nearby, as I recorded in my journal. And now, all we had to do was to wait. That's a shock. There was a rustle in the bush, and there was the dragon. Our first sight of this magnificent monster. And down came the door. Hastily, we piled boulders on the door so that he couldn't lift it up. We got him. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> but you can hear how everybody's going, oh. <laughs> I mean, this is, looks slightly terrifying. There's many wonderful shots of you hiding behind bushes. I like that. Yeah, well, that's, that's the one. Those, fortunately, the audience has got wise to this sort of thing. Right. So you don't see that anymore. That's very much a period shot of the 50s, looking straight at the camera and pretending you're looking at a dragon, you know. <laughs> I think it's a shame. I think we should do a film of you just behind different bushes around the world. Yeah, well, <laughs> well I've got a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a, a brief hiatus uh, for you from presenting, because in 1965 you were appointed as controller of the newly launched BBC Two. You were responsible for all sorts of uh, experimental commissions, I suppose, Monty Python. Um, yes. And uh, Kenneth Clark's Civilization, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention uh, first regular colour broadcasts uh, mm -hmm. in Europe. Uh, so I just want to talk about the snooker just for a brief minute, because <laughs> I was made to watch this as a child, but my grandparents didn't have a colour television. Um, it was because you had some spare colour televisions that you decided to put the snooker on. Is that true? Uh, well, it, it, it is true that, that um, we hadn't put snooker on television at all because of the problem of seeing it in colour. Yeah. Uh, and what is equally true is that we had very little, few cam colour cameras, believe it or not, we were very short of equipment. And with, uh, with just three cameras, you could, and a, and a snooker ball table, which you know how big that is, you could get hours and hours and hours of television. Um, and and the, I remember talking to the, to the commentators for the first one, and I said, of course, I mean, we, we're doing this because of colour, and, 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 but a number of people with colour televisions, it's very small. Mm. Uh, so I said, look, you'll have to guide that people are watching it in black and white. And he said, yes, of course, I do understand. So in, I think it was the very first or the second programme in which he actually had this rather breathy delivery, you know, and he used to say, oh, now he's going to go for the pink. And for those of you who've got black and white sets, the pink is next door to the green. <laughs> I have to tell you, my father, who was Danish, was baffled by this kind of broadcasting. He just didn't understand it at all. How did you take to being in charge of a channel? I mean, presumably, were you able to make programmes at the same time? No, 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 not with on two. Uh, but but it, was a bl it was absolutely blissful. I mean, you were kind enough to mention some titles which were successful. Uh, but the whole point about BBC Two was that it was experimental and that we would not do any programme. My, what I said 
at the beginning was, we will do no programs that are black and white carbon copies of, of what's on black and white. We will, people will turn on the set and, and they will know immediately that that's BBC Two, just from content. And I don't want any repetition of what's on other networks. So that we did just new things all the time. Now, people say, that, oh, frightfully brave that was, but it wasn't actually, because the number, we was, BBC Two, people forget, BBC Two, you had to go buy a new set in order to see BBC Two. If you had BBC One, it was 405 lines. BBC Two was on 625, and, and, um, and you, you, you had to do a great clunking switch and go which one was. And, and so um, BBC Two had a very odd uh, audience, but we, we appealed to it on the grounds that it was different. And if, if it wasn't interesting, people didn't turn but over. But it must have been hugely exciting, because, I mean, today oh, no. a lot of television is decided by committees, um, but presumably you could have had an idea in the bath and think, oh, we'll make that. Oh, frequently. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. Yeah, really. Absolutely. And is it true that you did actually get rid of an animal while you were the controller of BBC Two, because you, did you not get rid of the mascot? There was, a, there yes. was the kangaroo yeah. and her joey called Custard, I think it was. Yeah, yes. Did you, get, right. you got rid of the kangaroo? Yes, it was all over the note paper, I remember. <laughs> I mean, they were embossed kangaroo. And, and uh, <laughs> um, I went to the, I was given this as a network's note paper, and I looked at the um, programs for kiddies, you know? And I said, I, I won't see it anymore. I don't want to do that. We're a, we're a grown-up network. I don't know if it's true. Do, I mean, I don't know if you, were you there for the opening of BBC Two at Alexandra? No, I, I only took it over when it was 11 months old, just less than a year old. So I think on the opening night, they got a real kangaroo and um, the, the lights all went out and it got stuck in the lift. Um, <laughs> classic BBC story, I think. <laughs> So did you, did you continue, because of your, uh, you have a passion for natural history, were you able to continue to no, commission not, programmes while yes, you were in we, charge? Yes, we, I, I commissioned a, a series that was called um, we, The World About Us. It then became The Natural World and one thing or another, and it's still running, actually. And you wouldn't believe how funny was, television was in the 50s, you know? There was no 30, there was no one-hour, 50-minute documentary of any kind on BBC One or ITV. And so BBC Two, one of the pioneering things did, it would start a tradition of showing 50-minute programmes. So we made all kinds of, uh, I mean, I remember one of the things we made in the documentary series, it was called One Pair of Eyes. And it was deliberate that, in fact, you took someone who had a balmy idea of some sort and allowed him the, to have a producer and cameraman and so on and make a programme about what he thought you should do about bullfighting mm. or in support of it you know, or whatever, something odd. And there was no one-hour program docu uh, documentary on BBC One. So it was, it was a thrilling time. And do you bemoan the loss of that? That slightly more maverick no, you, time? You, you, well, yes, it, it was fun. But it, you know, nothing stays the same, and it can't remain the same. And, and, and that was that particular moment in television in which it was, had this sort of champagne feel to it. What do you feel like when you see your younger self? Do you think you could possibly have predicted not just the scale of all the work that you've done, but the impact that it has had. No, you, you had no idea, really. Uh, and, and to start with, of course, you didn't, um, because in the 50s, it was a minority thing. I mean, the number of sets that people had was very small. But it grew and it grew and it grew. And so you got used to it, I suppose. I mean, in 2011, you broke the record for the most 
uh, viewed natural history programme with Frozen Planet. 2016, you broke it again with Planet Earth 2. I don't know how you feel about beating your own records. It's like Mo Farah running against himself. <laughs> well, of course, natural history programmes aren't made in the way that we made those. Even Life on Earth was, was a comparatively small unit. I mean, um, Blue Planet 2, uh, there were 50 people, you know, working on it. Uh, directors, several directors, uh, and 20 cameramen, editors, and so on. And so it's a very big deal now. And uh, my responsibility is entirely with the words now on, the, on that particular series, uh, in that I, I write the commentary and, and, and record the commentary. But the shaping of the programme, the credit for that, w which I... I I regard as great. I mean, I, th I think it's, they're marvellously put together. And it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to those people who did that. Uh, and because my face and voice is associated with it, I get all the credit, you know. Oh, how nice. Well, oh, yes, but, but, you know, uncomfortable, really. You know, I mean, everybody thinks, I made Blue Planet 2. I didn't make Blue Planet 2. James Honeyborn made Blue Planet 2. Uh, the whole group of them. Sure, but I think you're being modest about your contribution. What do you, I mean, the, what's astonishing is the age bracket, sort of 16 to 34. I mean, much more popular than X Factor or any of the reality shows, Love Island or any of those things. What, it, what do you put it down to? I put it down to that the, age group. The, well, the, well, because. Kids, I mean, small children are riveted by the natural world. There's, it's something in us. We, we're a part of it. Kids know that. They look at these things. It's alive. How does it breathe? What does it feed on? How does it produce its babies? And, and once that's in your mind, you, you can't get rid of it. And uh, the people, it's such a, a privilege to make these programs because I get a lot of letters, but I get a letter, I might get a letter from a seven-year-old saying, I love that, this, that, and the other. But I can equally well, the next letter could be from a professor of 75 who said, I'm very interested in that particular action. How did you get the shot and what does it mean? Because for every single one of us, at any time in our lives, there are things you don't know about the natural world. And it's beautiful. Mm. Uh, it's unpredictable. Uh, it tells you things you didn't know. It doesn't try and sell you anything. Uh, and it doesn't ask for your vote. Now, what more do you want from a television <laughs> program? So, of course, my children are hugely excited to meet you uh, this evening. What I want to know is, that have you been invited to a David Attenborough rave? <laughs> <laughs> You've never, you know anything about it? You're not getting a cut of the profits. <laughs> we've, got, we've, got a, we've, got a, we've got a picture. Apparently, they all have masks of you, and uh, the whole place is done up as a, as a, as a jungle theme, apparently. <laughs> and everybody is you for the evening. <laughs> oh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, let's talk a bit about, I mean, you're being very modest about your own uh, contribution, but your narrative style... Uh, I wonder whether that has changed, um, because you must be aware of, of how it's no longer a niche thing to be interested in natural history. It's very mainstream. And I wonder if it changes because you get a letter from a seven-year-old and a 75-year-old professor, and you know you need to address both of them. Well, I think, I think if you've been a producer, it helps a lot. Uh, and I, when in the 50s we were putting films together, you were in a cutting room and you're getting the shots and you're hanging them up on pegs and you were putting them together in a certain order to tell a story. And your aim was to have no commentary at all. 
What you wanted to do was the pictures to tell the story, because they, they could. Mm. All you had to do was to restrict your words to the th bits of information that were necessary to understand the pictures. And for a start, you don't need adjectives. You know, if you know to say it's wonderful and so on, people can see it. Yes, it's okay. And you don't have to. So, so you cut down the commentary to a minimum. And if you, when I look at stuff I did years ago, uh, if I have a criticism, which I do on all times, but almost always I say to myself, too many words. If you'd cut down that by another 10% of the words, you'd have done better. And that's, so it's, it's, it's editing the pictures to tell the story, and you just add those little bits of information that are necessary. Keep it down to a minimum. And is there a difficulty in balancing up? Because you, as you say, you want the pictures to speak for themselves, but you're also educating as well as entertaining. Is there a moment when you think, I know so much about this creature, but actually I, I need to tell them less in a way. I need to just let the creature make those yes, noises. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, if, 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 the, if the thing tells enough to make the majority of the audience hang, hang on, see what's going to happen, don't interfere with it. Yeah, just leave it there. Well, uh, I have to say one of the standout moments uh, for me, for audiences, uh, in fact, it was voted Virgin TV's must-see moment at the Virgin TV British Academy Television Awards. It was the snakes versus iguana chase. Am I right, people? Unbelievable. The answer, of course, is, you see, first of all, there was the director, a woman director, who had gone to Galapagos in the early series and had spotted this happening at the end of the time where she was doing something else. And she had the wit to say, we've got to go back next year because that's the thing. And secondly, of course, you, uh, the editor was a skill. Those are Hollywood skills. Yeah. The way you, you cut away, the way you build the tension, the way you bring up to a climax, the thing, oh, it's going to be killed and so on. And, and then you add uh, music by a Hollywood composer, yeah. you know. So the end is, if you, that, that's a powerful thing. The last thing you wanted was, was commentary. I mean, those words, I hope, when they come, were there because you needed that bit of information. Yeah, to know what's but going on. But, but, but that's, you know, team effort. But what's amazing is you see there people on their sofas anthropomorphizing like mad, saying, mm. oh, he wants his mummy, or maybe he doesn't know where his mummy is. And so, we absolutely, so there we are all cheering an iguana, not yeah. something I ever thought. Do <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? You, you might cheer your football team or something, but yeah. you oh, let's go sit on our sofas yeah. and cheer an iguana. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but it doesn't surprise you that, that we identify so closely? Um, no, not at all. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, um, it's only too easy, really, particularly if you edit it in the way that we have edited it. Um, I mean... Um, well, the music is fantastic. I looked it up. It's the composers Jacob Shea and Jasha Klebe of yeah. Bleeding Fingers. Yeah, and yeah. It just made a big difference, didn't That's, it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's, it's a confection, in a way, in the kind of a Hollywood movie tradition. Well, it's that. like a James Bond movie. But yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. With the iguana on our side. But, but, oh, yeah. but all the drama's there, you see. You don't create it. Um, your uh, programmes have been shown in uh, over 30 international uh, territories. I, I, I imagine you can't avoid being aware of the impact uh, your shows have on today's audiences. Is there anywhere that you can go uh, that you are not known now? Um, well, I, mean, I suppose, yes, people have them been shown worldwide, and so, yes, people do it. Um, so what sort of things, when people come up to you, what are the sort of things that they want to ask you? What are the... Nothing much, really. They don't. I no. mean, just stand. They, I mean, they do occasionally. I remember a taxi driver who turned around and said, "Hello, hello," and he said, "Mind if I ask you a question?" And I said, "No." And he said, 
What's it all about? <laughs> I hope it was a long journey. <laughs> but new technology has been one of the hallmarks of your career. So we talked about broadcasting in colour, then introducing audiences to 3D television. You've always been a leader in, and a pioneer in technology and television and broadcasting. In fact, I have to say, you are the only person to have won a BAFTA for shows in black and white, colour, HD, 3D and 4K. In ZooQuest, you had to get the animals into the studio because you simply couldn't get close enough. So presumably, all the changes in technology have changed now how you yeah, approach huge, production. Huge. What are the sort of things that you think that has made just the most enormous difference? The huge, the one big change uh, was from film, which you couldn't see once you'd shot it, to electronics. Uh, and, the, I mean, the, the, just underwater, for example. When, when I felt, started filming underwater, we had a 100-foot load camera. It took two minutes 40. It was in a sort of can with a bit, with a, with a bit of glass on the front and, and, a, and a, a wire um, a viewfinder, which gave you an approximate of what you're looking at. And if you shot something, and you, once you shot two minutes, 40 seconds of it, you had to go up, back to the surface, uh, and that take, you've got to decompress, you know, you've got to take the lid off, take the camera out, put another thing in, shut it out, and then go down again. And that would take you half an hour, or often an hour, if it depends how deep you were. So uh, it was in, once you've got an electronic camera that could go on filming for 12 hours, it made a huge difference. But also, it's, there are more things than that. The fact that you could see it immediately after you'd shot it. I mean, when we took the dragon photograph film, uh, film uh, we had to put that in, onto the, uh, an aircraft, and you wouldn't know for three weeks before what it was Well, like. because in the beginning, you, uh, the BBC had required you to do 35mm film, yeah. and you persuaded them to do 16, mm -hmm. didn't you, because the cameras were lighter. But you couldn't possibly have known, as you were putting it in the can, no. whether you'd actually got the shots no, or not. Absolutely not. So and indeed, on, in, in Paraguay, I remember, we got filmed back after, I think it was about five weeks. Uh, and after, when we went back into the, into the, the charco, into the jungle, and I came out again, and we got a, a, a telegram into the nearest place with a report, and it said, regret to inform you that all shots on the 400mm lens uh, have a hot spot. That means mm -hmm. you, you, there was a big white spot in the middle of it, and it was all unusable. So all the close-ups we had well, newsable. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah, heart, absolutely heartbreaking. The disaster, really. But, but not only that, and those are, the, as it were, the obvious uh, advantages of becoming electronic, but the other advantage is that now, you see, with electronic camera, I mean, it's, they're much more sensitive. You can, you can film in the dark, much, much lower light conditions than you could with, with celluloid. <coughs> not only that, um, but you, um, you can actually take a small camera the size of, of an apple, less, and put it on the, on the bough of a tree where you know a bird's going to and just li And leave it. So and leave it there. Yeah. And, so, and you can actually watch it with, with, a tele with um, uh, trans uh, transmit pictures to, you, to your monitor. And you can see whether, you, whether you've got a shot or not. But how marvellous, because then you're not disturbing the creatures you in are, any way. No. You can put it on, a, now you can put it on a drone. All those aerial shots which you used to have to have uh, aircraft. You, the drone will take this little camera and you can get all the aerial shots you want. Um, and, and, and so it goes on. I mean, the, that change to electronics transformed 
the whole of natural history farming. And presumably has an impact on, uh, on discovering new species. I mean, I'm thinking in particular uh, about going down into the deep, to that part of the planet that fewer people have been to than have been to the moon. Mm. That is full of wonder. It's, to me, it's like a place where art students have been allowed to go crazy and design fish. Yes, it's just so wonderful, isn't it? <coughs> so presumably, with this new technology, that is when you get those astonishing bioluminescent yes. creatures. Uh, and that was coupled with the new technology of, of deep-sea uh, uh, craft. Um, uh, I mean, a huge privilege. I remember the first time I went down into one of these uh, submersibles, you had to lie on your stomach, like here, and you're, and, and you're a great palaver about how long you were going to stay under one thing or another and you had to compress and you had to do, think about air condition, how long it was going to take and you looked out through a squint through a little thing the size of a, of a tea plate you know like that um, and um, you I could only go down for a certain short period before you'd have to come back and uh, well now you see that for Blue Planet one and two we had a marvelous submersibles in which it's like a, a huge bubble of perspex, transparent. You sit there alongside the pilot and you can see all the way around you and you're at the same pressure and temperature uh, as you are on land because they have a rebreathing system. So once you get in, it's all clamped down and you are rebreathing re and recycling the, and you're getting the oxygen back and so on. And you sit there eating a bar of chocolate and say, oh, no, that's, that's, that's a shark. Oh, wow. And, and you can go, I mean, I went down uh, nowhere near as, as, as uh, Orla Doherty did, who, who was the woman who directed uh, the, the, the deep in Blue Planet 2. She went down very, very far. I didn't know the been as far as that, but I've been pretty far. Uh, and uh, what a privilege. It's just like watching television, as it were. It's breathtaking. I mean, uh, we talked a little bit about fear, and you said you do have fear. See, I would find that terrifying, because you don't know what's going to come at you through the deep. I mean, there are many creatures down there that we still don't know, aren't there? No, no, yeah. So, so does the wonder overtake you, and you leave the fear behind at that moment? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're just there so, so amazing. And, and, you know, by and large, animals don't, aren't aggressive to you. Unless you interfere with them. Um, I mean, they, they, what is there to be gained from that point of view? I mean, mm. in, a, in a, an animal behavior sense, why should they attack you? If, they, if you are just there being passive um, and, and taking it slowly and not, you know, I mean, if they, if they are getting worried, nearly always what they do is push off. And that, of course, is a, is a, a bad technique on your part because you don't want it to. Be no, you want to keep them all nice and quiet. So calm. you, yeah. So you, you actually do what you can to be submissive and quiet and uh, and just observe so they're not not alarmed. Uh, and that's all. I mean, I, I've, I've been. What's the worst thing I've been was I, I, I've been charged by a rhinoceros when I was in a Land Rover, and the rhinoceros destroyed the Land Rover around me. That's quite bad. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> well... I mean, tricky to ring the AA and say, funny things happen to the London. <laughs> <laughs> Trixie, that's the worst, and that's only once in 50 years. What is wonderful is that you always sound so confident and you say, well, this is now the anglerfish and this is their particular way of procreating, whatever. Uh, how many times are there shots where you just think, I have no idea what we're looking at, we have to take it home and somebody else is going to have to work this out? <laughs> or, almost, I mean, this is the unromantic thing to say, almost never. The, the, the fact is, you should have done your homework. 
my job is to know what, what the possibilities are going to happen. You ought to know what they are. Mm. And you shouldn't be caught aware, unawares. And I don't think I ever have in a serious way. And not only that, you just don't go out into the natural world and say, or into Africa somewhere, and say, oh, I'm bound to see something interesting, you know, <laughs> I'll squirt around. You, you've got an idea as to what your programme so, is. And you want to know that this is the moment when you want to see what? Um, monkeys um, self-anointing, you know, for curing themselves of ears and using special leaves. And you traipse around with that, uh, that uh, monkey troupe and there's a scientist that you've just, who told you about it, and he comes along and helps and says, yes, go down to this troop, they're doing it and what, and, and you traipse around until you get it. And if they do something else, you don't say, oh, well, I'll forget about the self-anointing, I will do, I'll... because that's not what you're about. You've got a very strong idea as to what the function, why you are there, and that's what you're after, and that's what you, you get, and you stay there until you get it. And you talked about it, I mean, you gave, paid great tribute to the astonishing production team who have won BAFTA. I mean, you've won BAFTAs personally, but they have won BAFTAs uh, sure. as well. Are there any shots that come to mind that you think that was particularly challenging for me and the team? Are there any shots where you think, oh, my goodness, I can't quite believe we got that? Oh, yes, I mean, lots. On, um, because cameramen, you've worked with them, you know. I mean, they, they are extraordinary people. Um, and, and, and when we were working on film... You may be going to try and get some particular shot of, I don't know, a snake doing something or other, and it will be over in a trice, you know, and you don't know whether he's been changing the film or whether it's in focus or whatever, and you say to the cameraman, did you get it? Hmm. And he either says yes or no, and I've never known them to be one. Not one cameraman has said he's got it when he didn't. Not one. They absolutely know. Yeah. What I think is there must be uh, so many bits that ended up on the cutting room floor that didn't make it to the programme. I just wonder whether those are ever going to be picked up and uh, used for something else. Yes. Uh, well, what they are is actually not quite as good as the shots that you put in. Because what you, if, if it is a snake or monkey's self-anointing, um, and you may shoot it three or four times until you, you know, until you're quite sure you've got it right. So that what you left on the on the cutting room floor is maybe ninety percent of what you shot, but it's not as good as the ten percent that you showed. So you might as well chuck it away. The no, um, there are occasionally sequences in which you actually you, you you get a very good sequence, but in the end, the overall package of the of the film. It, there's no place for it. It's too, the film would be too long. And those you do put on the shelf, and those you can bring out and put later, only for the press to say, oh, they didn't shoot all that on that. Oh, you know, they, were talking, they shot that last year. So no, does, that, does that annoy you when you get those kind of um, critiques? I, I think sometimes uh, that, that, that people criticise the thing because, you know, we get enough praise. I mean, I, I, we, we do get a lot of praise. And, and if, you, if they say something that... The, and particularly if you think it's not deserved, it shouldn't worry you. And do you keep a note of everything? Have you kept diaries of all the things? That I kept journals, yes. Hmm. On, on trips, yes. Because, uh, presumably, I mean, you see so many things, it would be impossible to remember everything. Yes, absolutely so. And particularly if you're going to write about it. Um, and, and, of course, the thing is... Well, I expect you keep diaries, but I, I only do it on trips. And uh, the trouble is you do all these programmes, but you have interview programmes, and you're explained exactly how it was with the gorillas. And after about 10 or 15 years, you've been absolutely honest with how it happened. You happened to read what actually happened. It wasn't like that at all. <laughs> 
Selective memory. Now, I've got a quick question uh, for the audience. What do Tupac, Elvis Presley, Kate Moss, and Sir David Attenborough have in common? Anybody know? The answer's holograms. Um, you yeah. now have your very own hologram at the Natural History Museum, is that yeah, right? that's correct. What did you think about it when they came and suggested to you what we want you to do is to be a hologram? How did you feel about that? Oh, I, I think it's, you know, it's fun doing all these new things. Um, I don't know how, whether it'll catch on or not, uh, and I don't know how popular it's going to be, but it's fun to do and see how to do it. Um, and th this is a... a a system of, it, it, it is um, high, high definition, of course, it's three dimensions, of course, uh, and it also, not only that, but it allows you to interact with... You can pick with things the, up, as it were. You, you, as viewer, can pick things up and look at the object, turn it round, see what, what the, the, the skull looks like, or you can actually enlarge it to... Uh, a huge size, or you can shrink it in size. So we, we look at a whale, for example, and you can see how its jaws open and, and it's how it filters exactly within, as it were, within the mouth. And so this is a group of... But in order to get the hologram, which you saw me, I had to go to Seattle in, in uh, uh, the United States, which is the head of Microsoft, and, and there they have a, you go into a studio which everything is green because you use an optical device which filters out the green in the, when you wish. And there are 309 camera, cameras looking at you, you know, all round. And they, they take, and you, you have to speak or spiel. And then they use these 300 odd shots to compile statistically um, a, uh, an electronic formula which produces you and it can then make it do anything. So it looks as though I'm actually in the Natural History Museum, but I'm not. I'm in this, it's just a hologram that's in the museum. But think of that, you had sometimes one camera with 16 mil film, and now you've got more than 300. Yes, that's right. astonishing, doesn't it? Well, it is, yes. And I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how, where that goes. Uh, but then that's what we said in 1952. It'd be interesting to see where this goes. Well, I have to say, I've been to the Natural History Museum many times. I didn't even know there was this cryptogamic uh, herbarium. 780,000 uh, specimens of mosses. Mm. Uh, what I love is that you don't know which child you're going to wake up mm. to deciding that that is the thing that they want to study. Right. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, what do you think this is going to contribute to an audience's experience of natural history? Natural history? Um, I think it'll produce a one-to-one -one relationship um, it, 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 that you could actually... I mean, the trouble is when you go into the museum, there is tears, there's that fossil or that stuffed bird or whatever, it is, and that's it. And you can't get closer because there's a glass and you can't see what the underside of it's like and so on. Um, and so uh, it, it, this enables you to, to, to take this object and to manipulate it Look at that upside down. See the underside of a trilobite that hasn't lived for, what, 450 million years? Um, and then you put it down on the table and it walks away. Um, and, and so it means that you can have a one-to-one -one relationship with really important objects. And of course, there are objects that are unique in the world, in, in New York or in uh, New Zealand or in London. 
And it means if this spreads, that you'll be able to take and look at these objects in that sort of way and examine in that one-to-one -one way and get a feeling about it, and which I'm sure will captivate, I'm sure it'll captivate children, but it should captivate everybody. It's fascinating. Well, I wonder as well whether it'll change the way in which specialists work because they know somebody is going to be able to do that, to turn it around. And maybe they would look at it differently themselves. Yes, yes, I think they do. I mean, one of the things we look at in, in, this, um, in this group that we've just done in the Natural History Museum is the jaw of a, of a pterosaur, the, the flying reptile that flew above the dinosaurs. Um, and it's the only one in the world, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a kind of thing that nobody's ever seen before. And I am sure that there are specialists in pterosaurs, biology, on the other side of the world, who would be thrilled to be able to look at this thing and that, oh yeah, I always wondered just how that tooth, how that fitted into the upper jaw, and you can make it do that, and you can see it, you see. So, um, I, I mean, I don't, let's not over-exaggerate, let's not exaggerate, I mean, uh, it, it, scientists are very clever people, and they don't actually need all those kind of uh, visual aids, but a lot of lesser people do, like me, you know, and, and so the thought that I could be able to looking at uh, an object in, that's in um, New Zealand Museum, uh, which I was interested in, which is lovely. I'm slightly worried now that people can do it to you now that you're a hologram. Can they move your mouse and just... Uh, <laughs> slightly, feeling slightly I've got someone with, with a hand up my back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did it feel to see yourself in, in that way? Is it strange? Uh, well, I, I mean, I suppose you ought to say modestly, yes, it's extraordinary. How absolutely so worrying and upsetting and so on. But the fact of the matter is that if you work in our game, yeah. our game, you actually see yourself all the time. Yes, I've seen myself from hideous angles. Yeah, so yeah, well, yeah, but hideous or whatever, you, there's not much you don't know about, <laughs> about your, the, the face, the way you are. And, and, and if you're working on making programmes, you you've got these shots in which you do things and you run them backwards and forwards, and so you know this character in there perfectly well. He, he doesn't really have much connection with what you are, but, he, but, he, but you know him perfectly well. Uh, what I love is that you're so up to date and you love all the technology, but you don't do email. No. Don't drive. No. Your mobile phone is the oldest one I think I've ever seen. It's, yeah. a, a, it's, <laughs> it's astonishing. What, why do you not, what is the, the, that division in your private life that there isn't the new technology, it doesn't seem to particularly oh, appeal to you? Idleness and stupidity, I dare say, mum, some might say, but actually there's, there's quite enough uh, for me to cope with as it is. I mean, I get a lot, I get 30 or 40 letters a day, a, a day, five days, six days a week, wow. you know? Um, that's quite enough to deal with. Um, and I know I've got lots of friends, and, and I bet you, how many, how many emails do you get a day? Oh, it's hideous. And uh, well, it's the ones from Lakeland that annoy me. I <laughs> don't know how I've ended up on their list. I don't know how that's happened. <laughs> Well, exactly so. Yeah. yeah. See, and so uh, my view is if they want to say something to me, write me a letter. I that immediately agree. says that's going to cost 20p, you know. That, that, cu that cuts them down. <laughs> I love a proper letter, though. Do you have a letter yeah. opener? I've got yeah. a letter opener. I think yeah. it's a very interesting Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yes, quite right. Um, <laughs> let's just talk a little bit um, about the negative impact that our actions are having on our planet. It is one of the things that I think the younger generation are absolutely awake to. And I think the finale 
of uh, Blue Planet 2 was very important. It saw you address this negative impact. You have loved the planet. You have loved it for all the time that you have been showing us its glories. How does it make you feel to see those things? Oh, dreadful. I mean, it's, 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 um, it makes you weep, uh, really, literally. Um, uh, the one I remember seeing it in actuality, I and mean, those, those are shots, I wasn't there for any of those shots by the cameraman, but I was there when on, on South Georgia in the Antarctic uh, when there was a, a, an albatross chick, um, which was, and it takes a long time to, to grow because they're so big. And the parents go off for up to three weeks at a time, scouring the ocean in order to find food. And the chick wakes there patiently two or three weeks, just in the, in the blizzards. And the parent come, the, the, male, the female came in, uh, and her crop was full, and she opened her beak, and the little chick begged, and out from her mouth came a torrent of food, and every single part of it was plastic. And when you see that, uh, uh, you've... Yeah, how profoundly can you be moved by those? I mean, that, and when you think of the implication of all over around the world, that sort of thing is going on. So you have an obligation to do something about it. At least, the least you can do is to say what happens. And do you feel, I mean, you have the most enormous reach. Do you feel you have a responsibility then to try? Yes, well, yes, you do. Um, I mean, it's, in a way, it's a complex thing, isn't it? How, because... Uh, you've got a huge privilege, and you do exploit this this privilege. I mean, you can't exploit it politically. You can't put political views on. But when does politics end, and when does morality begin? Uh, you know, um, and uh, so I think you have to be very careful about uh, what you say and how you say it. Uh, but there are overwhelming. Um, Truths that cannot be avoided, that you have to say, and and that was that was one of them in Blue Planet. Uh, I must say that that uh, I was I think all the team, all of us, we were astonished. I mean, we felt powerfully about those things, but we were astonished the effect it had. Um, and I, it isn't as though we've never mentioned it before. We have, but there was something about the, the timing. Um, of that particular program, not only in, in, as it were, in the schedules, as it certainly got a very big audience, but the timing in the nation's awareness of the world. I mean, we are devastated by all sorts of problems at the moment, which we needn't uh, enumerate, but because the, the world's in a rough state. Mm. Uh, and, and so people look to tell it to natural history programs in a way for some sort of consolation that at least that is something that's true and that's happening and is often is beautiful and, and so on. Uh, but when that too has infected and it makes you aware of what you've done and are doing very directly, we can't do much about um, global warming or climate change directly. But we can stop using plastic. And, and, and kids feel this very strongly. And can say, say to their parents, you know, we've got to, we mustn't use that. You know, look what it does to the, to the, to the, to the albatross. And, uh, and, and so all you have to do is, is to be honest about it. There it is. And 
it, it hit the bell, it rang the bell at that particular moment. Why, why it hadn't hit the bell before, I don't know, but, but certainly it did do this time, and uh, we were um, gratified that actually people see that, we, that, that it's an important truth that has come to them through their television set, and that it's something that they can do something about, and something that they can ask the politicians on their behalf to do something about. And that's the sort of communication that broadcasters ought to have, I think, uh, with their public. Well, I have to say, I, the only bit that heartens me is the young people. It's, it's my kids' generation yes. who are now saying, you, can, you don't have to have that, Mum, and don't have that, and making you have another look. And it is because of programmes like yours. As yes. Just yesterday, McDonald's announced that they're going to stop using plastic straws. Yes. And going to have uh, yes. paper or cardboard ones, which yeah. I think is absolutely fantastic. So, so as well as feeling depressed, maybe one could also think, well, that's what's good is we've woken up. Do you think we have? Yes, but but if if it's if it if we have, it's only the beginning. I mean, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. We we've made a real mess of the world. We really, really have. Uh, I mean, animals. I've been doing that, as you know, for 50, 60 years, and 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 the animals I saw. In the sort of numbers I saw 60 years ago, have gone, um, and uh, we've got to do something about it. Well, I think there's a. Is there not a, a floating area of plastic in the oceans now that's the size of France? Mm. I mean, it is. Uh, it is a terrifying mm. thought. Mm. So, so do you think about those things when you're writing your commentary? Do you think how can I say this without sounding political or preachy, but still trying to get the message across? Yes, and 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 again, one speaks for the team. You know. Uh, I didn't edit those pictures, the film. Uh, the, the production team did. I supplied the words. Uh, but, but we all feel the same. And I'm speaking of the National History Unit down in Bristol. The greatest unit of its kind, you know, in the world, and a huge privilege to be working for them, something that, that this country can be very proud of. Um, and that unit message from, from this book has, has gone round the world. So when you sit down to write your commentary... Do, do you agonise over every word, or does it sometimes just flow straight out of you? No, never, ever flowed, ever. I don't know how you, it is with you, but with me, uh, I sit with, with a script in front of me and, and, and uh, a, a, a television set, and we go through it again and again and again. And you, you've got to hit the, the right picture with the right word again and again. It's a, it's a kind of carpentry. It's a kind of joinery. Um, and it isn't inspiration in that sort of sense. It's hard work. Yeah. Um, and I would, uh, and it mustn't sound like hard work. It's got to sound as though it's absolutely natural. As if you're just chatting to us, which yes. is what it always sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to dust off your channel controller hat just for a second uh, and pop it on. Imagine that you are going to commission a programme uh, with the goal of empowering, I don't know, meaningful environmental action. What kind of programme would it be, do you think? Um, well, I mean, you'd have to show what the consequences are. Um, and you can't... I mean, it's irresponsible to just going on showing on the consequences without, if you're going to do a programme... This is not... This is, if you, what you're asking me to do is not just a three-minute segment, yeah. which is... Well, but, but an hour's programme. Well, then you have... To, you can't go on just, whoa, whoa, whoa. You've got to say what can be done. Yeah. There has to be an action plan, doesn't there? That's it? right. Yeah. And, uh, and I, again, I, I have to be... Uh, grateful that politicians are taking notice of it, you know. 
Um, and I needn't name names, but in this government, I mean, whatever its color was politically, whatever is in, 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 in power, uh, you've got to take, this is serious, this is serious. When you look at all the clips that we've been showing, I mean, you have, it's an astonishing range of material. The scale of it is stupendous. You have dedicated your life to natural history, introduced us to the most amazing locations and animals. When you look back, do, do you have any regrets? Do you have any things that you think, well, I wish I'd done that differently or I wish I hadn't done that particular thing? Oh, you can always think, I mean, if you, if you look at you know, a programme of past, and I, I bet you're the same, you can think, oh, I don't do that very well, you know, and oh, I muffed that. <laughs> what on earth allowed me to put that through? Uh, but, but by and large, in general terms, I am very grateful for the opportunities that come my way. I can't believe I'm that lucky. No, I really can't. I mean, who, who wouldn't give their right arm to do that sort of thing, you know? And, and the, there are the, thousands of people who could do it, as well as you. Even, even as immodest, to say tens of thousands, you know. And you just happen to be there at the right time. And, and uh, you should be grateful, but I certainly am. So I, I'm confident you have a million other things you're, you still want to do. What is next for you? Um, well, I'm off in, uh, in going to Africa in uh, three weeks' time, Of I course think. you are. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is a, a new series. And, 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 and again, it's the Natural History Unit, and it's their idea, not mine. And it's a brilliant idea. Uh, I don't know whether I'm really supposed to talk about it, but I mean, <laughs> you know... We won't tell we're, anybody. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're all professionals in this room. Um, and um, what we're going to do, what they have already done, uh, is they've gone to a group of animals, a, a, a little community of animals, basically, usually nearly always a, a family, cape hunting dogs, uh, lions, uh, chimpanzees. And we say... We are going to follow this pack uh, for three years, and we don't know what's going to happen. Whatever does happen, we will be there, and we will show it to you, and we will tell you the truth. Now, I won't go into details as to what does happen, but I can tell you there's some fairly dark moments in it, as you might imagine, and we won't tidy it up. And we won't conceal, uh, twist it in any way. We'll say what actually happened. And that's a new concept. And that's to the credit of the natural history that they're doing that. And I'm privileged to, to be told and asked to write some of the commentary. Oh, magnificent. Um, now, you got rid of the kangaroos, the mascot. Yes. BBC Two. If you had to choose a mascot for yourself, is there a creature that you say, that's the one, that's the one that I like the best? <laughs> <laughs> I can think of some fairly salacious something like that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I tell you, human beings are a very odd thing. Uh, I don't want to be a fish. I don't want to be... I don't even want to be a monkey. No. I am fascinated that the opportunities a homo sapiens individual has are extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And we are, we have that in our hands. And that I've been able to, allowed to do what I've done is just the most extraordinary privilege. So I don't particularly want to be a hummingbird yeah. uh, or a sloth. Oh, a sloth, that's not bad. <laughs> 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 uh, 
And there are various other polygamous animals I can think of, which are there, but never mind. Yes. <laughs> I think you should just be yourself. I think that's absolutely fine. Uh, I'm just going to uh, go to the audience now and see if anybody uh, would like to ask a question. We have uh, somebody down here. Um, if you are a member of the press, please could you identify yourself so that we are clear who you are? Hi, Hi. No. What, what's your name? Julian. You're not from the not press. a member of the no, press. Too well dressed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, given you're one of the most well-travelled people on the planet, and you've been doing this for such a long time, I was curious in the context of the environment. When did you first start to notice yourself the impact that humans were having on? When the I started to think of myself as when did you, when did you first notice the impact that humans are having on the planet? Uh, I mean, is it relatively recent or is it quite some time ago? Yes. Well, uh, well, you have to be very, very careful. Because if you say, uh, someone says to you in a challenging way, perfectly reasonable question, when do you decide that the, the, the climate was changing? When do you decide that you see uh, things are warming up? I could, I could tell you, and I can tell you. It was, I, mean, I saw it well, on South Georgia, uh, and I paid my second visit to South Georgia, which after about 15 years or something. And, I, and where I had stood before, I was at the front of a glacier, and now the glacier at front was way up in the valley, so it had retreated a huge way, so warming. Absolutely true, absolutely correct. But you, if you then say, some, someone else might get up from the back and say, well, it's funny you should say that, because I was in the Antarctic, and I can take you to a place where in that period of time, actually, it's got colder. And that's it, true. So if you pick individual answers to these things as examples and conclude what the, what the situation is just from those examples, you're in trouble. So you can, the fact that the global warming is taking place is a consequence of taking scientific uh, readings over long periods of time over all parts of the globe. That's when you have the right to say this globe is warming. Individual choice, I can go on. I mean, that particular glacier was, was one, and there are others that have changed. But, but it's, it, you, to be responsible, you have to take a, a, a proper scientific objective view. Thank you. Uh, just here. Sandy, can we just... Uh, <clears throat> this little girl would love to ask a question. I'm so sorry. I apologise. Hello, my lovely. Can you stand up so we can see you? What is your name? My name is Goldie. Hi, Goldie. How old are you? Eight. Excellent work. What is your question? Um, I, sh I wanted to ask, what is the most exciting animal you've seen? Okay. The most exciting animal mm. I've seen? I suppose one of the most exciting animals I've seen is a small ruby-throat hummingbird. And hummingbirds are only, only about that big. And they beat their wings so fast you can't see them. It makes a humming noise, like that. Um, and it can hover in the air, absolutely motionless, while it drinks nectar from the depths of a flower. And that hummingbird up in northern North America has come all the way from South America during the spring. So it's gone all the way up to North America to make its nest and lay its egg and gone back again to South America. And one of the exciting things about it is that people on the West Coast in California and so on love these little hummingbirds and they put out food for them. 
So that now, in fact, that hummingbird and relatives of it can go farther than they ever did because people are putting out food for it. Isn't that nice? I think it's lovely, apart from the fact that the hummingbird is the most beautiful little creature with all its iridescent feathers, and it can do this remarkable thing of hanging in the air. It's fabulous. I also wanted to ask if you remembered Attenborough class sending a letter to you. <laughs> well, say yes. Um, do, so, so, repeat the question, darling, which class? Attenborough class in Chestnuts Primary School. Can you remember that Attenborough class... Say yes. Can you remember that... <laughs> Attenborough class from a primary school sent a letter to you? Of course you can. I can, Yes, actually. absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Goldie. Wonderful. Very, very good. Just here. Thank you, New. Hi, what's your name? Katie Wardle. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, mine's kind of continuing on from the first question. Uh, I've just done my dissertation on ocean plastics, and I noticed that it was microplastics, for example, were first found 40 years ago, around the same time CFCs were. Um, and I was wondering what you thought was the main reason it's now becoming a movement and why it took 40 years to become one. Uh, so she's just done her dissertation on uh, microplastics mm -hmm. in the oceans. Uh, and she says they were discovered that people knew about it about 40 years ago. Why has it taken so long uh, for people to wake up to what's going it's on? Quite, it's quite hard to spread that sort of message, isn't it, actually? Um, supposing you put out, um, which says you can't see them, they're tiny um, and they are spreading an ocean and they're the result of, of some of the plastics that we've been doing. Um, human beings, would, who's going to take notice of that? I mean, we've, we've been going on about it, telling people about it for a long time. It's only taken a long time for the pennies to drop. The really, the really um, tragic thing is I remember when I was perhaps your age, um, and we're in the science lesson we had this was in the 1930s, and the science master came in and said, boys, because it was a boys' school, boys, I have to tell you, you're living at a historic moment. You have been living in the time of the steam and so on, but the age of steam is past. What is now coming is the age of plastic, and it will take, we will replace all sorts of things with plastic, and the, we have been so clever as chemists inventing this plastic. We've invented it stuff that is unbreakable. It is, you can't destroy it. It's wonderful. It won't wear out. How extraordinary that is. Do you know, and not one of us in the class, or indeed the chemistry master, or indeed the politicians or the industrialists of the time, apparently said, if we can't destroy it, what's going to happen to it when we don't want it? Nobody said that. Extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's a fairly simple question. But that's, that's what human beings are, you know, not all that bright. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, finally, that I want to say thank you as well, because I became a documentary, well, I'm trying to become a documentary filmmaker, and specifically wildlife, because of you. And like she everyone. wants to thank you that her career that she's pursuing is entirely down to you. So. <laughs> Right, up at the back.
over the back. Uh, I seem to be. Oh yes, I will come to you, my darling. Next over there, you waving at me. Hi, what's your name? Hi, my name is Nick McCarthy. Nick. It's a, it's a bit of a, a tricky question, but I just wanted to ask. I mean, have you thought about if there of all of the things you've done in your career, um, what is it that you hope your legacy might be? Uh, so he's asking what you think your legacy might be. Oh, I, I, I suspect I, you haven't done it yet. Do you know what I mean? I think <laughs> plenty. No, of I mean the legacy. The legacy is the library of the National History uh, of the National History Unit. Um, as I've explained where, where it all came from but, uh, and how many people have contributed it. But the, the, that will be the legacy that I would be most proud to be associated with. Um, and let us hope that it's not as valuable as it might be. It might be the case that quite a lot of the things that exist in those electronic pictures will no longer exist in 50 years' time. I hope that will not be the case. Um, but it could well be that people will go back to these films in 50 to 100 years' time and say, gosh, look at that creature. What a pity it is it doesn't exist anymore. So that footage will be fairly precious. It's as though you could suddenly see a titanosphere or some other dinosaur that was once on Earth, and you would uh, be able to see how it actually was. And that's... Uh, that's a nice legacy to feel you had a, a hand in, in, uh, in, in creating. Uh, right up at the back. Hi. Hello. Hello, what's your name? Well, um, my name is Variety, Variety D. I'm a stand-up comedian, and I want to cheer up the atmosphere a little bit because it's getting a bit too sad, man. Oh! You know? Okay. Um, and my question is, is uh, first of all, uh, how are you two doing down there? Because I am way up here. You guys look like ants. Um, <laughs> But yeah, my, my main question really is um, on behalf of a dozen comedians I know. Um, so Dave, do you get um, any royalties if any comedians do impressions of you or any uh, impersonations? Because... Um... Uh, the, the lady is a stand-up comedian and she wants to know if you get any royalties if people do impressions of you. <laughs> How can I fix it? If you, can you, have, you got, have, you, have you got a pal who could um, make that arrangement for me? I might me? owe you some change. I have to call equity or something because... Um, you know, me and my friends have been doing a lot of impressions and stuff, and we got paid for it. So I um, want to give you some, some, um, some of the money. Yeah, she's, um, she's offering you a cut, I think. Oh, I, yeah. I'm saying very much. I think you've thank, done thank well Thank you very tonight. much. I'll yeah. give you my address later. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, that's what I want. Perfect. Deal. Uh, I've got time. Have I got time for one more question, I think? Uh, here. Hello, my name is Teresa. Hi. And I, first of all, would like to thank you, Sir David, for being here tonight. It's just been fantastic. My question is really from my mother, who is 93, and that's, this is not, not this lady sitting next to me. <laughs> oh, she's younger than my mother. Um, my mother actually phoned me um, after I'd left the house and said, you have to ask Sir David about his early programs that were on television, and one of them specifically she would like for you to sh have it shown on TV again. Um, she called it... Uh, about Persian nomads. The Persian nomads? Yes. Yes. Do you have any control about getting those <laughs> put back on TV for my mother? Oh, right. So the lady's mother is 93. Yes. She wants you to make sure that you get the program about the Persian nomads rebroadcast. Do you have the power? I've had the power. Well, there was a group called the Bakhtiari, which you will, I'm sure, know. Yes. Um, and they regularly um, 
migrated from the mountains uh, down to the sea. Uh, and I wanted to make a program about the, the wonderful rugs, the Persian rugs which the nomadic people make, which are individual creations which they weave on the way down. Um, and um, we traveled with them on that migration. It was a series about uh, what we called the tribal eye. And it was about the way in which different communities and cultures make things. And it was a, such a privilege to travel with these fantastic people, you know. And they followed a route that they had been following for at least a thousand years, if not more. Um, and uh, we slept in the same place, so I slept on the ground. And I remember very well in the traditional place where the, 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 the migration there had been year after year for centuries. And I stretched like that, and I put my hands into the sand just by my neck, and I found a coin. It was 350 years old, mm. silver coin. Could you get the show shown again, please? <laughs> <laughs> Could you get them to broadcast it again? The Tribal Eye, it's called. Yeah. yeah. And do you still have the coin? Hmm? Do you still have the coin? Yes. Good. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I'm afraid that is all that we have got time for uh, on behalf of the audience. I have to say, David, this has been one of the greatest privileges of my life, <laughs> sitting here chatting to you. And I thank you on behalf of the audience and for our wider audience who are going to watch it uh, online. But most of all, I thank you on behalf of all the creatures of this planet who have cared for and focused our attention on, uh, on their behalf. Thank you so very thank much. Thank you very much. So David Attenborough. Thank you very much.